What's up, fellas? Excited for our second episode of the week. Uh, I had a, a blast on this one, uh, as you'll see as I talked almost the entire time. Uh, but it was really, really cool getting to talk to uh, an NFL guy uh, that had helped recruit all these different football players and, and could give an insight on what what to look for in certain football players and what we as coaches can help develop. So I think you guys are really going to enjoy this. Uh, if you need anything from us, head over to runthepower.com. We've got all of our videos and, and podcasts up on our website. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by our guys over at Just Play. The team at Just Play hooked us up with their product, as you guys know, and it's been a game changer for us. We love the playbook tools allow us to create our favorite blocking schemes. Uh, obviously, you guys know plays like power, counter, inside zone, pin and pull, and even some wide zone for us this year, uh, and formation so we can save time and be more productive, which is what it's all about, especially in the offseason. Uh, they have a limited time offer for RTP listeners only. Get my Just Play Pro for $120, which is an unbelievable $60 off the normal list price. Uh, this offer has been extended but won't last forever. Um, so get this deal at JustPlaySolutions.com slash RTP. The best playbook tool on the market at JustPlaySolutions.com slash RTP. Don't wait. Go do it today. On today's episode of RTP, we talk with Scott Levin. Coach Levin is a former NFL scout with the Cleveland Browns and also now works for Just Play Sports in their online football playbook. Listen as we talk with Coach Levin about his awesome football journey and experience, how he evaluates talent and players, and how important it is to match talent to the schemes you wish to employ. We also talk about Kyle Shanahan's offensive system built around the wide zone and complimentary runs and play actions. You can follow Coach Levin on Twitter at ScottLevin3. Hope you guys enjoy. I appreciate you guys having me on. Um, I, I love talking ball, and I now work with Just Play Sports. My name is Scott Levin. Um, I've been with Just Play just a little bit over a year, um, sort of a playbook and, and video and, and player app way for you to be able to create your preparation stuff and send to your players. Um, so I do that now, and it's, it's great, and I think we're really helping coaches. But I do miss the day-to-day of talking ball, and uh, that's mainly because I, I spent – you know, I began my journey just coaching um, high school ball back in my hometown in Florida, in Orlando, Florida, at Winter Park High School. Um, and then when I went to college, you know, I, I coached at Winter Park, and then I went up. I was in Gainesville for a little bit, coaching at a high school there. And I, I with the you know the intention of getting on with the the University of Florida football team, um, that came to fruition right after the 2012 season, um, where I was there for about 18 months and working in recruiting practice scripts, you know, making coffee, whatever I could do, really just kind of absorbing football and, and soaking it all in because there are some great, you know, defensive minds there and offensive guys there, um, good relationships to this day. And then I actually, you know, I find myself very fortunate in this business where um, one of my bosses in, in Florida, at Florida got a scouting coordinator role in, in, with the Cleveland Browns and brought me up the following year as a scouting intern um, so I spent actually from 2014 through 2018 as a scouting intern, two years as a college road scout, and then one year kind of in a mixed role in the office between pro scouting where I'm basically doing advanced breakdowns and, and uh, 
and doing like free agency reports and then a little bit of college scouting as well. So it's, it's been a really unique football journey for me. Um, kind of, kind of being around great football minds along the way and learning a lot. So I'm, I'm excited to be doing what I'm doing now, but I love talking ball. Well, is that, you know, you kind of talked about making some of these scout cards and, and doing different things. And I think anyone that's ever done that, um, especially when you have to do them a bunch, yeah. everyone's always looking for a better way to do it. I feel like, I mean, yeah, it, it, it could take, uh, at least whenever I was in college, I didn't have to actually make them. Obviously I was just playing, but they were all hand drawn. They were all, and, and I can only assume that took a GA, um, the entire day. And he's yeah. going to do a, a, um, you know, like for us, it's got to be fast because we've got to teach. But you're in college, you're a GA, you're also going to school, you're doing all this. And so everyone's always trying to find the best way to do it. And there for a long time, I don't know that there necessarily was a best way to do it. And then you, you've got it in these rings and the coaches are asking, oh, no, now I want to go to this play. Yeah. And uh, I've heard some real horror, horror stories about that. Yeah. Yeah, and, that, and that's I've, I've experienced the horror stories of a GA or myself having to run back across campus at Florida to slide another – card inside of a you know a, a clear folder because it's raining and it's just a mess and that's um you know it is it is one of the things I, I saw initially with just play is you're able to really um create a catalog of of scout cards that that you can carry over as a coach week to week year to year so if you're facing similar concepts you know coaches stay in the same district have similar concepts you're really just recreating the same scout card so this way you're really you have a database that you can pull from as you, as you continue to go. Yeah, I think I think the part I like about it is, um, and obviously we don't want to do a, a whole podcast just, you know, talking about this, but since we're on it, um, uh, the part that I loved about it is, you know, there's some other playbook tools out there and, and they'll um, try to auto-guess by what you put in, but there's so many different things that you put in, uh, the auto-guess of what it's given you just ends up to me, at least for me, kind of getting screwed up. The cool part for me was being able to save it under the exact names I wanted to. Then yep. you just drag it over and there was yep. never, ever a problem, you know, cause I've got, you know, playbooks where I'd like to have um, the O the squares and the O's and, and everything. And I want the defenses to be letters. Um, and I want it to look good in a playbook. And then I've also yep. got how I want my scout team to see it, which is I want them to have numbers one, two, three, yep. That way they can go in odd, they can go in even, they can go to a bunch of different stuff, and I don't have to worry about, oh, you're this letter this time, you're this letter this time. And so when you're trying to match those up, if it auto-generates, it gets screwed up a bunch, where um, the part that was so nice about Just Play that I loved is all I have to do is save, you know, under however I want to save them. Now I just drag and drop it. And like you said, maybe this week he's a 2i, um, and the last week he was a shade and an under front. But that's a really, really easy one little person drag over um, as opposed to switching everything around and flipping and going back and forth. That's the part that has saved me so much time. And it almost seems stupid that it hasn't been done yet, but it's just, it made it so much easier for me. It saved me a bunch of uh, time. It it is, it is interesting. I appreciate you kind of talking on that and and I don't want to harp on it too much more. So it's, it's, I I think it's the best playbook tool. I've used a lot of different ones in my, my travels in different, you know, different places. Um, so I, I'm really fortunate to be with them. And I, I think we're really helping coaches streamline their process and really create time throughout the week by, by, you know, make them more efficient. Coach, you talk a little bit about, you know, being in the, the scouting side and being able to, you know, look, look at players in, in, I think, honestly, you know, different light. What were, 
what were kind of some of your areas? And then also at the, at the same time, you know, what were some of the, some of the first things you kind of looked for, you know, at being an, an NFL scout, obviously it's going to start with, you know, some of the measurables and talent, but mm. what might be some of the, the more unearthed things that, that I think a lot of guys maybe, maybe kind of miss, or, or maybe it was something that you guys had maybe within your guys' scouting department. Gotcha. So, so you mean areas like what regions of the country initially? Yeah, what regions did you kind of get stuck? Because I know they, they try to give you guys regions, I would think. Yeah, so, so I did one year I did what they called the Badlands, and that was um, the alley of the country that was basically from Idaho east to the Minnesota-North Dakota border all the way down through West Texas and, and New Mexico and uh, Colorado and that whole alley. So it was a lot of driving. And then one year I did the, the most recent year I was there in 2018, um, I, I scouted the Northeast, so really north of uh, Washington, D.C. Um, and, and it's interesting. You talk about measurables, and each scouting department has their own set of standard measurables that they think play in the NFL or play in their division, you know, whether it be height, weight, speed, or standardized test score. And you're trying to really fit a profile of a player um, within that within that measurable standardization. Um, but what's interesting, you know, team to team and really, cause I, you know, the, the fortunate and unfortunate part about working in Cleveland is I got to see a lot of different systems from Kyle Shanahan's zone scheme, the wide zone to um, John D. Filippo power run, Hugh Jackson for vertical stuff. And what's interesting is each coach, you know, the elite players can play in every system, but the, from really rounds four through seven, what you're looking to evaluate, you know, trait wise, is what fits that system. So I'll give you an example. Is right now in San Francisco, there's a guy named Daniel Brunskill who plays right guard for them. He was a tight end tackle flex at, at San Diego State, I believe, and no one wanted him. But the, the physical trait of just being able to open up, run, and straight line speed, acceleration, and quickness, those three traits, in Kyle Shanahan's outside zone, wide zone scheme, those are paramount and you weigh them higher than brute strength or, or power run schemes where, you know, if you had a Larry Allen type, for example. So it's interesting to be able to find those physical traits and fit them to a scheme and watch a player excel because those traits are weighted higher. How do you uh, take a guy like that? It's playing tight end in, in college. How, how does it work that you guys decide or someone decides, Hey, I think this guy can play guard. Is it coming from, that player's thoughts is it just seeing oh he's six foot five and and nearly 270 and and not necessarily tight end but but does a good job blocking it tight end how does that work to where you, you go all the way to that because there are a bunch of really good I'm sure college football players that just play offensive line and and you've seen I mean I don't know I've, I've seen a lot of guys I think translate from college to you know they come in as a college tight end and they make them an offensive line lineman right. And you probably don't see, though, as many guys go from tight end in college to uh, NFL offensive line. So how does that whole process work? I mean, initially, the player has to be open and willing to, to do it. I think that we've seen that now with Taysom Hill saying, hey, I was a quarterback, but really you're a football player. Um, so I think the player's desire has to be there because it's going to be a natural growing thing. So you talk about a Daniel Brunskill in San Francisco. Um, George Fant, who's a tackle for the Seattle Seahawks now. And what you're looking at is within each position, you're going to evaluate what we would do is, and this is pretty standardized throughout the league, you evaluate the physical traits on a, on a number scale. So they're standardized, you have quantitative you know, representation to kind of compare the players. 
And then with each position, you'll have, you know, specifics to that position that are important. So we talk about that Brunskill player. If he's a tight end and he is a, on a one through nine scale, one being the worst, nine being the best. If he's a one, you know, receiver, he can't get in and out of his breaks. He's slow off the ball. He's getting jammed. He just can't operate in the passing game. But you see for a tight end, his, his strength power at the point of attack is a nine. You're seeing the ability to open and unlock his hips, reach nine techs, really manhandle players at the point of attack or, or create movement on down blocks. Then you start saying to yourself, well, if he's a nine blocker or a nine you know, point of attack player as a tight end, let's say he's a five at, at guard. So if you, you know, after interviewing the player, if you find out he has the right mindset, right mentality, right toughness, understanding those physical traits, you say, well, if he's a five on a one through nine skill now, get him in an NFL training regiment, become, you know, have him acclimate to the position, and hopefully that continues to grow. And, and you, you know, in that sixth, seventh round, you unlock that, uh, that gem that everyone wants. Yeah, obviously that's what everybody's looking for, I, I think, is, is the guy that, um, you know, slips under the radar or, or whatever. So with the qualitative, you know, or quantitative number, um, uh, what are some of these guys that, that come in, and, and I don't know that I've even got a, a great uh, specific name, but maybe one of the short quarterbacks, like a, um, a Russell Wilson, yep. right? Those guys came in low, and, and obviously I'm sure for their height and some of that, they, yep. their number was very low, um, yep. but ended up being a great quarterback. Are those guys, are their high numbers extremely high for what they do well, or are there some guys that people rank completely wrong and give them twos, threes across the board and end up being great players? Or does that almost never happen? And normally it's just a few numbers that are bad, but then they're, they're high numbers offset and you kind of get lucky that that number's so much bigger. Right. Well, and, and you, we talk about Russell Wilson. I'm sure Russell Wilson wishes he was 6'3 at times so he could see over the line of scrimmage. But we talk about that one through nine scale. That means Russell, Russell Wilson has compensating factors that we would talk about that really just overcome any, any physical or height limitation he has that clearly isn't a limitation. So whether it be Russell Wilson, Drew Brees, I mean, their accuracy is, is outstanding. It would be a nine in that realm. Um, but really, to that point, you talk about guys misevaluating. All, all scouting really is, is rep, you know, you're, you're making educated guesses. So you're, you're projecting players based on what has played in the, in the past in the NFL. So we talk about those standard measurables. NFL general managers and scouts don't like being wrong because that's how you get fired. And it's one of those that, that they're, going to, they're going to try and they would rather be wrong taking the big, strong, fast guy mm-hmm. than be wrong taking the uh, – the, you know, the outlier that, that they may, their, their eyes may tell them on film, that's the better player, but it doesn't compare to what their, uh, their measurables in the past have played in and excelled in the NFL level or whatever level it may be. Yeah. I think, I think you see that a lot in college football as well. I mean, at least at the, you know, cause I went to a place that was smaller at Houston and, and I saw Houston take some guys that ended up being NFL players yeah. um, that, other big colleges wouldn't take maybe because of their size or because of their whatever it was where Houston coaches could get away with offering some of those guys. But yeah. if you're University of Texas and you take the, the five, eight receiver instead of the six, one receiver uh, yeah. and, and he, both of them flop, well, you don't, you don't get, there's no problem with the five-star 
six foot, you know, two receiver because uh, it must be his fault. Where it's your fault if the five eight guy comes in and isn't in any good. Right, exactly. You you swing and miss. You want you want to swing on miss on the guys that that are quote unquote consensus players rather than going out on a limb. And people are scared on that. It's it's tough to trust your eyes at times where no one else believes it. So. What's kind of that cutoff point? I was going to ask, you know, when, when you're doing the, the scouting and it's just like there's, there's absolutely no way. I mean, where, where, does it, where does it have to be like that, that cutoff point? Or, or is it like you said, you'll leave a guy on your list just because he has one or two of those things that are com- extreme outliers and maybe all of a sudden, you know, a Coach Shanahan comes to you and says, hey, you know, Scott, do you have anybody who's, you know, who, hit, who fits this bill, fits this mold? But like he, he was like missing in so many other spots, or is it just like you know what? I'm not even going to bother with it. We there there are cutoffs that, that a lot of GMs, a couple of GMs I was with, really from a measurable standpoint, that they will just take them off the the, the board, the the undrafted board, free agent board, anything all entirely. So if a player is under five nine, for example, in the corner, let's say he's five, we, they would measure an eighth of an inch. Let's say he's five eight and seven eighths. It doesn't matter if the next guy's five nine, even if five eight and seven eight, he's off the board. It doesn't matter. Just because hard and fast lines help protect you, like we were just talking about. Mm-hmm. But I do think that that's an interesting point. Is is those outliers have to fit the scheme in some way? Their their exceptional trait, whether it be a nickel that you know that nickel needs to be a better tackler in your scheme, or if you're a rolled up to you know corner type situation, those guys have to be able to tackle on the flats. Well, I'll take the slower corner and later in the draft it because I know he can affect the run game as, as a force player. Those sorts of things based on scheme, that's where you're able to hit on those outliers, I think, just, just as you match it up with your football team. And there has to be a consensus, too, between, you know, at the college level, between the recruiting staff and the coaching staff for development purposes. They have to be on board with developing that player. And scouting and coaching staff in the NFL where – hey, we're, we're, we like this player's mental makeup and, and his trait fits your scheme. You have to be on board with developing him. Otherwise, you're, everyone's just wasting their time. So I'm kind of interested, uh, and I don't, need, I don't necessarily want to be as a personal, you know, this person. I just know of this off the top of my head again because I know of Houston. Uh, we had a quarterback come out, I think, a year or two ago um, that ended up starting for the Panthers a bunch this year yeah. um, and, and didn't play at all at, in college. I mean, yep. maybe he started a game, but got beat out by another really, really good quarterback and, and never yep. got his, his opportunity to play. How yep. do – and now he goes in the NFL and, and is, is doing, I think, I would assume, a, a pretty dang good job as a, yep. as a rookie. Um, how do – how would a scouting department look at a guy like – is he – I mean, is he just lucky that he plays quarterback and so you can see some arm talent and some different things in, in, um, on his tryouts? Or, or how does something like that work? Uh, not necessarily just with him, just – in general, if a guy, you know, is playing behind a, a freak at one of these big colleges. Who, who was it? It was Matt Castle didn't start a college game because he was at uh, – it was between Carson Palmer and Matt Liner. Is that what it was? <laughs> he played longer than both of them, right? Isn't that what it yeah. was? Yeah. Um, you know, quarterback's a unique deal because there's only one. Um, so, you're, I, I know the player you're talking about it, and it's tough because – you know that you don't want to you don't want to be the habitual transfer player at any at any position and and feel like you're not competing, but there's only really one quarterback to to figure out there. So if there's from the quarterback position, you're going to be able to see it at practice as a scout because you go to practice several times a year at each school, and you're going to be able to communicate with the coaches and they'll tell you if a guy's you know a, a real player in their words. Um, 
But I'll give you another example, a player named Albert Huggins from uh, Clemson, because Clemson had these four D linemen that went top 50 or whatever it was last year. And there was this kid from, from a powerhouse South Carolina high school, went to Clemson, he was just the fifth D lineman, but he would rotate. He, he ended up going in the fifth, sixth round with limited film because you were able to see some of those traits that we, you know, we continue to talk about, whether it be strength at the point of attack, um, be able to, to defeat double teams, let guys play free behind him. Being able to see it in limited snaps um, is key projecting forward. So talking about the, those guys that are buried, if you show the physical ability, you'll get a look, I think is, is the most important thing to see. So, How many different like criteria are you breaking down? So say you, know, you, you have your sheet in front of you, you're, mm-hmm. you're scouring through film. I mean, how many different you know, physical traits, you know, skill traits that they have to show the athletic traits, I mean, what, whatever it would be, how many different things are you kind of ranking guys on? How, how in-depth is that? It, 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 it can get pretty in-depth. So with uh, one of the scouting systems I was with, because um, unfortunately we, we had a couple in the four years I was there, the, uh, <laughs> we would do six, we call them physical traits. And it was uh, speed, acceleration, quickness, um, athleticism, meaning like balance and body control, and then strength and power. And we would define what each of those meant, and we would rank each of those for every player that wasn't a quarterback or specialist. Quarterback, we, we had a few other ones, and, you know, it's a, it a different position, skill set. Um, and then we would meet with the coaching staff every year. So we talk about fitting traits to schemes. So we had our physical traits, and then we had our position specific. So we thought, what, what is key for a quarterback? And if this coach's number one thing was, Ability to run the offense, meaning mental processing, ability to get the play started, completed, you know, with maintaining possession of the ball, being able to communicate the play. That's something we would rank off of film. And then accuracy, arms, you know, arm talent, things like that for each position. So we would weight those based on what the coaches thought and what fit the scheme. Um, so I would say it would probably be 12 physical and position specifics combined. And then we had a, a long list of character breakdown that we would fit with each with with each player and from there the uh decision makers would would kind of make the the take it and synthesize all the information and make their choices does did the college system because always you know hear about this when you're getting ready to go in the draft and you're and i'm listening because there's no other football on so it's all you're hearing about is the draft and 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 it probably hadn't been talked about as much lately but um whenever i was going through college it was all always and especially with quarterbacks but it was always you know he's a system quarterback they don't want to look at him here and he doesn't run an NFL type offense and so if a you know if a coach wants their top thing for a quarterback to be is be able to run different plays but he's a guy that's going out of um you know spread no huddle and the coach is calling it in every time you know do they want this guy or not and then I would assume even like at at tailback or or even offensive line you know if you go to a college that's a, a gap scheme um, and, you, yeah. and your tailback's a gap scheme guy because he's in college, but you're a, an outside zone, you know, wide right. zone team in the pros. Does that – does it hurt kids as much – not hurt, but does that affect kids' uh, draft scale um, at all as much as, as they say it does? Or are you guys able to, with all those numbering systems, kind of look past some of that college system? It, and the, that, that's a really – it's interesting. First of all, I, I – I never loved watching the NFL draft growing up. I, I thought it was kind of boring going through. So it's funny there's so much coverage now you were talking about. Um, you know, it, it's, it's interesting. The whole point that, that – the whole reason you, you grade each individual trait 
is to reduce the bias because you could watch film and say, oh, you know, Kyler Murray, he's a runaround smaller quarterback that plays in a spread system that, that is atypical in the pros and the coach would really have to buy in. Um, but then when you really break him down, you realize, wow, he has outstanding arm talent, outstanding accuracy, ranked whatever that number would be correspondingly. Um, you know, his, his speed, acceleration, you know, physical traits are rare. So why doesn't this, you know, you, you start asking yourself, why can't this guy play again? And then, um, you know, that, that translates to each position, including, you know, level of competition. You have to, you have to ask those questions of, of what you're looking at each time and question yourself as you're evaluating. But it's, it's interesting about the, uh, that spread system, the quote unquote spread system. I think when you describe spreading the field in, in a pass heavy offense, you're really describing being able to read a concept rather than, you know, seven step play action, take a shot or outside, come back off a, off a, uh, you know, a, a max pro set. So to me, when I, when I watch a quarterback, I like seeing him be able to, you know, choose half the field pre-snap based on a, based on what shell he's looking at and then understand what concept he has on that side and pick the route based on how the, how the coverage rolls pre or post-snap. So to me, I actually liked it. And I think that the NFL is going to experience that trickle up, which, which happens in football from the high school levels where a lot of this was initiated to the college where it's blown up and, and really become the norm to the NFL, which we're now seeing now at, at multiple teams. So I, I think that, that it's a detriment for players to play in a you know, straight three-step, five-step, seven-step drop-back offense. Hmm. Uh, you know, I kind of always thought that, too. I, I was around a guy, uh, Case Keenum, that was unbelievable, called his own yeah. plays half the time. And, yeah. I, you know, he always kind of got the, the thing that he was just a system quarterback. But I thought the same thing. I was like, this guy's a genius. He's, right. you know, checking us into, um, as far as passing goes, some some unbelievable things. Um, yeah. So so what we've talked a lot about, and I think it's probably what everyone thinks about is, um, you know, scouting for the draft. Yeah. Did you guys, and I don't know how they break it down, maybe it's different, but I, I know there's also probably a lot of scouting that goes on from guys on other teams, especially I would assume uh, in, in the, uh, you know, before the season starts, before guys find their 53-man roster. Yeah. Um, I know there's a lot of scouting going on from other guys in the NFL, um, maybe yeah. even on their 53-man roster if you're looking, guys are looking to trade and, and do different things. Uh, was that something that that all the scouts are a part of, or do they section some of that off, or, or how does that work? And then, um, did you guys keep binders or, or whatever it was uh, the same way as you did over uh, draftable college guys? Yeah. So, so it, it's it's what I would say is every player, every preseason, every player in the NFL when when they're at the ninety man rosters and you're evaluating preseason, every one of those players gets evaluated and gets assigned a grade to them. And then throughout the season, there's, there's, there are a couple scouts, there are pro scouts, quote-unquote pro scouts, that are doing what's called the advanced breakdown. They're essentially working one week ahead of the coaches. And those scouting reports are more focused on scheme schematics, how, how their traits are being used in the game in, on film during the season. And then after the season, players are given an evaluation for free agency if they're a free agent coming up. And then the remainder will get written up before the draft, whether it be just a, a, an off-season checkup. So each player in the, in the NFL will, well, no matter what, at least how we did it in Cleveland, got two grades. So in the preseason, every scout would have, including the college scouts, would get one to two teams, and they would just watch the film, evaluate a, you know, a pretty quick summary of what the player would be, 
and then the lower guys on the roster that we would be interested in, they would send into the uh, the director of pro scouting or the general manager for them to look at in preseason for waiver claims and things like that. But um, the free agency process is really an in-house ordeal from the, the pro scouting department um, and the general manager staff where they're sitting in a room and just going through every free agent for every team and comparing and building a free agent board separate from the college draft board. Oh, wow. Uh, and, so, and, yep. go ahead. What, what's, what's interesting about it is it becomes essentially a marketplace of, of how you're going to attack free agency and what is out there and then um, what is, what is uh, you know, what you need to go after in the draft. So because you, you see what's out in free agency and what you need to uh, – where you need to address your needs, if you, if you swing and miss on a quarterback when you're quarterback needy, then you have to go in the draft. Or if you swing and miss on a, you know, a, a run-stopping detackling for agency, then, hey, we, need, we know in the, in the marketplace to draft, we have to hit that. So the way that a lot of teams will do their draft meetings, they'll have their draft meetings and their free agent meetings back-to-back. So they know going into free agency where the, the two boards kind of intersect and where they need to address their needs in both, in both phases. So uh, when you guys are and, and everyone's a part of this, I'm sure a little bit, and, and you're looking at who we're going to pick up and and what we're looking and what our team needs, um, I would assume there's there's certain guys, and and maybe it kind of brings me to this question too. So I'll ask this one first. But uh, I think the big thing that everyone thinks of when scouting, as I always think of this movie, is Moneyball, and that has to do with baseball. But uh, basically, you know, behind it was everyone was. Um, you know, as bat speed and thinking about these different things and, and kind of the eye test and different things. And then um, guy came in and, and kind of looked at some different statistics and that's kind of a dumbed down version, at least what, yeah. what I get from it. Um, has there been um, anything similar to that uh, in the NFL side of it? I, I know there's just, there's not many stats for, for different positions. So uh, it's maybe a little bit more difficult to tell, but yeah. has there been anything that way? And then kind of with that, um, is there some thought to who you want to go after with draft and with free agency as far as, you know, uh, at least from what I've heard, receivers are really, really expensive, but they may not give you the most bang for your buck um, mm-hmm. with how many times, you know, or how easy maybe they can be shut down or how few times you actually get it to them in a game. Yeah. And, and, and so how are you guys familiar at all with kind of what the last five years of Cleveland have been? Or you asked the money ball question, so that's why I'm, I'm, I'm interested. Did you, did you ask because of the, the, the analytics stuff we were doing in Cleveland or not so much? No, I, don't, I really don't know anything about it. I just know that I really liked money ball because it seemed like everyone was coming at it from a different angle, um, and it was a team that maybe didn't have much money, so they had to find a, a different way to do it. So I just didn't know. I'm not very familiar at all with, with Cleveland or, or how they were doing things. So, so in the movie, there, there's Jonah Hill. The character is the guy who invented this system for for um, for the for the A's, and and he was the the character. I think is Peter Brand is the character in the movie. Correct. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a guy that the actual guy's name is Paul De Podesta, um, and he was a baseball executive for years and years after being with the A's, and he is currently the I forget his title, but he's essentially the general manager of the Cleveland Browns currently. Um, wow, no, I didn't know that. Yeah, he came in. So, so I, I was hired by a general manager named Ray Farmer, um, gave my first opportunity. And then about 18 months in, they um, made the first changeover to Sashi Brown and Paul DePodesta. 
and Paul at the time had the chief strategy officer title. And essentially, we're, we're starting over where they were going to gather assets. Um, tank isn't the right word because there was never intention to tank. But it was with the understanding that we are in a long-term rebuild looking towards value. So you talk about finding value in players. And, and I've actually seen a lot of the systems they put in. So they've really attempted this in Cleveland under a five-year plan. And uh, interestingly enough, they're, they're entering year five now after changing over to John Dorsey two years ago and seemingly changing back now. So um, they, uh, <laughs> they, I, I got to see the process in the football. So that was, that was, when you asked the question, I said, I didn't know if, I didn't know if you had insight into that. But um, the, the, the whole idea behind Moneyball is, is that it doesn't matter in baseball how the pitcher throws the, the pitch, if it's a submarine-style pitch or if the second baseman is short and fat, it doesn't matter because their production is there. Um, now, baseball is a one-on-one sport, right? It's pitcher versus hitter, essentially, correct? Right. Um, football is moving pieces. It's 11-man. It's, it's multiple schemes. Um, so there's really a lot more into it that you have to read. But at its core, Moneyball and what they were doing in baseball is l- looking at you know, whatever worked previously to predict, um, predict how a player would do moving forward. And they did that by reducing bias and using the, the quantitative stuff we've been talking about. Now, the, in, in scouting, it's still a scout's eye that grades those numbers. So you have to be able to provide a larger sample size, not just say, hey, Julio Jones is good because he made this, these two touchdown catches at Alabama in three games I watched. You have to say over 14 games or 28 games in two years, he's good because I saw it happen that many times. So it's really just increasing your sample size so you can reduce the bias and you're not saying he's good because he's big, strong, fast. Did that make sense? Um, that kind of answer your question? Yes. Yes, it, it definitely did. Uh, so so kind of my other part of that is, and, and maybe this isn't a good question to ask, but what are, what are some positions that um, – generally you see a lot of teams maybe overpay for uh, that aren't as big of a, a bang for your buck as maybe some other positions. You, you said it is, is uh, the receiver position. I mean, everybody wants the, the – I said it, but Julio Jones, the, the horse on the field that really is big, strong, fast, catches everything, can outrun, can do all that. But if you don't have one of the top five guys in the league, what are you really looking for? And it's, it's in my mind as, as a scout, I would always evaluate for can he catch the ball because the name of the position is receiver, so he has to receive the ball. And can he create separation? Now, if he's not big, strong, fast, and can do it every which way, how does he create separation? So if you're looking at paying a guy in free agency, so you're talking about value, um, you could find guys that create separation that are smaller. You talk about a John Brown, I think he's in Buffalo right now. You know, he's small, but he was at Pitt State, a little undervalued at a smaller school, but he can fly. So you talk about creating separation. If I was evaluating that as a receiver, he would be, you know, eight, nine, and, and that's scale. And that's one of the things you have to value that even though he doesn't pass the eye test. You talk about uh, Mike Williams, who was drafted really high in, in L.A. with the Chargers, but I think he ran like a four six one but he creates separation with his body type. So you're talking about a big, tall, strong, fast receiver that's going to win the contested balls. Now you have to be able to match those skill sets to your scheme to make sure, you know, it works. If you're running a lot of crossing routes and, and trying to run away from guys, and you have a big, strong, you have a big, slow guy, that's not going to work. It's, it's just not going to fit your scheme. But 
if you're throwing back shoulders where you're boxing out and playing big boy ball, that guy's going to have a higher value for you. Yeah, I think you start to look at, especially from the, the receiver standpoint, I, I've kind of gotten, you know, heavily involved with it. We've, we've had a, a couple of pretty good receivers, and, and you start to see some of the, the junk coverages and the things that they do. Yep. You know, a, a lot of people, you know, might say, okay, they, they overvalue that receiver, but there's, there's so many things that happen when all of a sudden now you don't have that receiver. Yep. You know what I mean? So it just kind of, like you said, it kind of becomes that double-edged sword. But th that way you got to know, to me, then it goes back to your analytics. Okay, we need to find then the guys that, you know, can separate or the guys who can make plays on third nine or the guys, yep. okay, when, when Julio Jones is drawing the double team, you know, when they're playing their second best corner on them and they're playing the safety over the top, yep. do we have a, another guy that can beat another team's number one corner? Or do we have a guy who can beat up, you know, the other team's nickel when they're matching those things up? So I think, you know, un understanding how all of those things kind of interconnect is huge mm -hmm. rather than like you said, oh, let's get, let's get the two best receivers we can. Well, now we overpay for, you know, two dudes when in all actuality, all you needed was one. Right, and then be able to find those other two guys that we've we've covered, you know, already up to this point. They have those outlier traits to win in those situations. Exactly. I mean, it's once you have, we call it the guy that dictates coverage. I mean, when mm -hmm. when when you know where the coverage is leaning or whatever, however they're calling their coverages to your X or your your dominant guy. First of all, that makes the life so much easier for the quarterback to know what he's seeing pre-snap. Yes. And, th and then you talk about, I mean, the guy that can uncover on the number two mm -hmm. or whatever maybe. What I always thought was interesting is when you look at, like, the Patriots in 07 with Randy Moss, okay, there's your coverage dictator. But Wes Welker is not only just a, a okay, I'm going to win on comebacks against number two. He's motioning. You can bring him across the formation. It, it really, when you motion with that guy too, it reveals what coverage you're seeing. So the quarterback knows pre-snap. Hey, I'm they're they're man, they're they're in single high and they're or they're in bracket two or whatever it may be. And and it just makes it the life so much easier for everyone because the quarterback can see it. Say if they're in that coverage, I know what, you know, how many they can bring in pressure, I know what how many guys I have to have protecting. It just reveals so much else out of the game. And I think that understanding where the where the value of the receiver of the of that X receiver is, um, that's where it is. If you don't have another guy to compliment it, it you can have them taken away. And that's – the Patriots do a really good job, and I, I was watching something about this, where they put – I mean, they really – if they're facing a dominant X, mm -hmm. they'll put their second-best corner on them, mm -hmm. and they'll just bracket all game long and put someone over top and play two to that side of the field or two-man. Um, and then they'll put their number one over the other team's number two and just mm -hmm. play man on that side. So they'll split field coverage or, or mm -hmm. mixed coverages and, and take both away. And that's what's made it, I mean, and now the chess game has changed because I think, you know, Belichick and, and all these guys have gotten used to, we can take away receivers because the game has all been, you know, past dictated. Yeah. Where now, now you're seeing the game change to, you know, to some of the RPO and also now the quarterback can run. Yeah. So you're seeing a lot more of the running QB now because it has become such a, a man-dominant game or, a, yeah. you know, a matchup-dominant or I'm going to double this guy, Dominic, or I'm going to bracket this guy. Well, cool. That's one less guy who's got his eyes on the quarterback now. Yeah. And, and now that's where the quarterback run game and, and guys like Lamar Jackson and, heck, even guys like Josh Allen, yeah. they're, they're changing the game. Yeah, 100. I mean, it's, it's essentially if you if it, it can go from 11 personnel to 20 personnel without having to sub anyone out and you have a numbers advantage at the point of attack. It's just a personnel advantage having a mobile guy. 
what I think is so interesting about the NFL as opposed to college is if you're Alabama and, and you're in college and you uh, recruit uh, Tua or some of the freaks they have at receiver, you get to yeah. keep all of them and you get to keep them for three years and eventually they'll go to the NFL, but but they're they're yours. And if you recruit uh, a five-star at every position, then you get a five-star at every position. Right. Where uh, in the NFL, even if you guys do an unbelievable job and, and you find a diamond in the rough at, at you know in the sixth round, yeah. well, in four years, if he is the diamond in the rough, you're going to have to pay him um, a, a huge, a lot, yeah. huge contract. So <laughs> you're never really getting ahead of anything. Because you're going to have to pay him. And if you pay him, you're going to have to cut some other guys that yeah. uh, had a big salary. Uh, and, and I'm sure, obviously, you weren't in on maybe all those meetings or you weren't a huge part of that since you were looking at, at um, you know, college kids coming up. What, um, but how, how do, do guys maybe or shed some light into how, how do guys think, you know, about keeping some of those guys? And, and who do we keep? Who do we extend those contracts? Is it a position thing? Is it – uh, a drop-off from one to two? Is it, um, you know, maybe it is position-wise? How does some of that work? And then are, are you guys, are the pro scouts, are they are they scouting their own players? Or is it a, more of a coach's deal when it comes to your own players and deciding who you're going to keep or who you're going to have to trade away? Well, it, it's also at the end there. It's, it's a totally um, – it's a totally uh, – franchise holistic um evaluation process i mean the coaches are have to be cohesive with the scouts and understand these are the coaches evaluations these are the scouts and kind of respect that they're going to be different at times but you have to be able to take both of them and, and paint the whole picture of the player and where you value them um it's it's a combination of things when, when you're deciding to pay a player um you know positionally i think there's there's higher value in, in than others in in certain schemes um I think that you, it's easier to find traits at a certain position than it is another or develop a certain position. Obviously, if you have greater depth on the offensive line and, and, uh, than, than receiver, then you're probably more likely to pay the receiver. But also, I think you want to rely on culture. And I think that gets lost a lot of times when you're looking at players because there's a dehumanization part of it where you're just evaluating traits. And, and you do lose the, the total picture of the guy. And the, the, you know, we still play football, you know, it's still a culture driven team driven sport where you want the right guy in your locker room from, from not just on Sunday, but, but Monday through Saturday building a program. Um, so I don't think from, as far as the free agency process, both from retaining and, and uh, retaining homegrown guys and bringing in other free agents, if you bring in a guy that's from another team that is not going to add to your culture, not just maintain, but add to your culture, I think that that you're it's going to be subtraction by addition doing that. So that's that's when you when you are looking at signing the six round pick that busted his ass and, and did great and um, is a real player and a real great kind of example for what it takes to be on that on that franchise. I think you want to look for the the culture guy as well, and that that plays heavily into it. When you look at uh, when you look at defense too, and you're scouting defense, right? And I always think this is the I go back and forth on this one all the time, but do you do you put do you place more value on pass rush? Or do you place more value on guys that can really cover in especially in today's league with today's rules? It's a good question. Um, personally, I think I think disruption wins. Um, 
I think that you can play coverage. I mean, it'd be nice to have Deion Sanders with Reggie White rushing the passer. Um, everyone wants that. But I think that when you talk about a passer, it depends what scheme you're playing. Um, personally, I'm in, I like penetrating upfield single-gap defenses. Um, that's what I would call. Um, I think you're looking for more pass rush oriented players and on the back end you can mix your coverages up enough and yeah you'll take your losses but if you're playing enough zone where the guys have their have their you know hopefully have their face to the ball there are going to be opportunities to create takeaways and when you talk about the more efficient defenses in the league it's not really about you know stopping the run keeping them under four yards of carry things like that it's it's affecting the passer and and creating turnovers in big situations because if you hit the passer enough and you create enough turnover worthy moments, the turnovers will come in the NFL or, or at whatever level. So, uh, yeah, obviously we would love to have you know Revis Island opposite of, of Jalen Ramsey right now, but I you know I I think affecting the passer is the name of the game. So I'm kind of curious how how are maybe how are the scouts scouted or, or how are they graded on on how they you know scout because I would assume you know if if you're going to rank someone and maybe they would rank you know a player would rank low in your offense but uh, mm-hmm. they rank high in another offense and now they exceed and you mm-hmm. didn't say as good of things about that guy but you know maybe he wouldn't have been as good in your offense or right. or whatever it was or maybe you know you've said a guy wasn't going to be very good and then he was or 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 vice versa how are how does that, all that work with coaches and I'm sure there's you know whatever, 20, 30, however many scouts on a team. So uh, maybe it's not that important. How, how do the, how is that looked at or how are you graded as a scout at, uh, at these, at this level? So, so there are about seven, there are seven scouting regions generally, maybe a national scout and a director. Um, I think that, I mean, everyone misses is, is something that you kind of have to accept that you're going to miss on a player. I think that you have to be well researched in your, in your, opinion and your and your fact finding I mean a big part of what I would do is really try and get a holistic view of the person so I can help project what I think of the player moving forward and what he will be um so scouts get evaluated obviously you have to, you you're you're brought up in a scouting system where you're taught you're you're evaluated day-to-day in an intern role or whatever role it may be um until until the general manager feels comfortable to put you in a lead role and then from there, you're really, you're, you're, as long as your opinion is educated and you're not, you know, whiffing on every player, um, you, you really, you're going to continue to grow and get better at it. So, I, I mean, it's tough to say because general managers miss. We all see it. Um, and, and no one, you know, it's the, 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 the saying is there's no right or wrong opinion in a draft room. You have to respect everyone's opinion because – we all miss and we all hit on, on gems. So I've, I've been on both sides of that battle. Um, so it's, it's tough to, to evaluate a scout until you see a player, how they turn out two years in the league, three years in the league. But as long as you're well-researched, then it's tough to argue with an opinion that is, that is based in fact and, and rooted in, in, you know, strong work. Are there guys out there, and, and you don't have to, like, name names or anything, but are there guys out there that people, you know, there's a general consensus, man, we should go after that guy, he's a top-notch scout, or are all the better scouts that normally go to general manager? There are there, – it, it's a totally different skill set, to be honest with you. And it's, it's okay. the same in coaching. What, and that, that I, you know, I think that it, it's – you know, I, I'm a younger guy that got this experience in the NFL and, and was able to do it, and – 
a lot of what you talk about, you know, do, do scouts become general managers if they're good? And, and I got this experience at a, at a relatively young age. And it's one of those things that it's because it's just the things that come to you in life. Um, I think that there are really good scouts that I know on the road that are scouting have been doing it for 20 years and haven't had that opportunity just because of the franchise they're in or, or their opinion wasn't the one called on draft night that helped the team. Um, that haven't reached that director role or general manager role or whatever it may be. Um, but there are consensus scouts really out there that, that you say, oh, man, that guy likes this player. And, and you'll hear that. And it's interesting because I've, I've been on the opposite side of that and, and won one and I've lost a few. And you, you hear that, oh, this guy likes the guy. And I went back and watched the film again. I said, I, I still don't like him. I, I don't because of X, Y, and Z. And I know this about his background. And you have to make your own decisions, but there are definitely consensus scouts out there. I think it's awesome to to have that skill set, especially I think in in any staff too. I mean, we I actually I'm I'm lucky enough. Uh, our quarterback at, at at Ankeny right now, his dad was a scout with the Jets for a long time, and and now he's back in, working in the XFL. But just just being able to bounce things off of him, I think you know from an from an athletic standpoint and, and DBs and linebackers. I know when when I'm looking at you know, attacking some of these. And I know he's watched the film. It's, it's kind of nice to be able to, to bounce some things off of him. And, and also they might find a, a couple of things like, Hey, you know, he, he doesn't move very well <clears throat> versus this type of route, or, you know, he's late on, on this type of read or this type of scheme. And honestly, you know, I, I'd known some guys before and it kind of changed the way you, you look at the game a little bit too, when you start to see, you know, how do they fit zone schemes? How do they chase versus the wide zone? Uh, how right. do they, how does he play, you know, how, how does he play, get, you know, cylinder flow when the, the fullback's in his face? I think, right. you know, there's so many cool things that you can you can pick up a, a nugget here and there. And a lot of people are like, oh, you know, you're, you're grinding the film and you're, you're looking at these things. But again, you also go back to three or four plays can decide a game. And if, and yep. if I can, if I can find one, two, maybe three things and those plays go our way, that could be the difference, especially in a close game. No, there's, there's no doubt about it. And that's, and that's when we talk about advanced scouting with those breakdowns, it's really how do you talk about how does a player face cylinder flow or, or take on, you know, dead ahead and, and with what traits. Those are the things that when you mesh, okay, how does this player do it with his physical skill set? You mesh that with the scheme and how can we take advantage of that player, whether it be misdirection or attacking them at the point. Those different things are kind of the mesh of, of how a player plays and then schematically how we can attack them and build a game plan off of it. Yeah, I think it's I think it's just an absolutely invaluable resource. I think it's it's probably one of the more under under game plan things would be the the scouting of players, you know, starting with that point and then and then I think probably getting more into schematics, you know, if if there's dudes that that we need to avoid, I mean, that needs to be the the number one thing in a game oh, yeah. plan, you know, and I think again, if there's if there's complete weak points in, instantly that has to be Hey, let's let's make this the focal part of the game plan and, and have them change it. Yeah. Well, what, what's it? Belichick says that, you know Belichick tries to take one thing away from the opposing offense. Whatever they do best, they try and make them one-handed with the other thing. Um, and I think that's you know I've heard that, but I think what he tries to do is take away their best player to a degree. Now it didn't it didn't mm-hmm. work this past weekend, but it's it's I think that you know people are what they do best is based you know, you would hope is predicated based off their talent and they meld their scheme to that. So defensively, if you can take that away, then you take away their best player too. So. Yeah. I don't think anyone was taking that guy away uh, on Sunday. He was a, he was, I never realized how big of a freak he looked like. 
Yeah, think he's, he's got to have nines across the board. I did the most impressed I was was it was it seemed like a twelve play drive. He didn't come out of the game one time. Nope. And as a tailback was just that was amazing to me. And it was a run heavy drive, and and he stayed in every single play. It was unbelievable. It, it's it's I'll tell you. So we were in draft meetings, and there was we have an older scout who was assistant general manager with the Saints. The the Jags has been in the league for thirty years. Um, and we were sitting there watching Derrick Henry film, and everyone was kind of nitpicking. Oh, he runs too tall. Oh, he's, you know, he's, he's, he's too upright, whatever it may be. You know, he, doesn't, he can't play behind his pad. Sometimes he gets tired. He's not a shifty guy in, in the hole. And the scout has seen, you know, he has this Rolodex of, of players in his head to compare to. And he looks at him, and he's like, that guy is a rare football player, will be the best running back in the NFL. <laughs> and, and I'm not sure if – you know, I'm not, I'm, I'm not versed enough in the film currently to say Derrick sure. Henry isn't. Um, because there are a lot of good backs right now, but when you what you saw in the playoffs when it's cold and no one wants to tackle, that dude was a dominant player. What what in your opinion, and, and maybe I'm off because, like I said, I don't, I don't pay too much attention to the NFL personnel. I just think it's really interesting. But the past few years, or at least you know four or five years ago, it seemed like running back was a almost a dying position. Maybe not dying, but guys definitely weren't going out in the first few rounds going right. after guys and, and now it seems like you know that's that discussion has come back to where there are some that that go after him in the first couple of rounds yeah. um what is it is it that they're grading out better uh with these groups of running backs or has there been some kind of a shift in um maybe offenses well it's i i think that you know i keep referencing the patriots i think what the patriots did well and i'm gonna kind of tie in the running back is the Patriots will play they, – they, they are personnel-independent teams. So when they had Gronkowski and Hernandez, they could be in 12 personnel, they could be in 21, they could be in empty. And it, they play the same formation – or they play different formations with the same personnel. So you're talking about a Saquon Barkley coming out now or a Zeke Elliott, you know, top five talents that may have gotten pushed down kind of later in the years or later in the 2000s when running backs weren't favored as highly but or ranked as highly but all of a sudden these offenses are looking now for these personnel independent pieces so you could be in 11 you could be an empty you could be in 21 and and dictate how the defense plays you or not allow them to create matchups based on a mic on Saquon Barkley out of the backfield I think that's where the value is really being created with these guys is, is a melding of the the power runner or the or the mixed mode back um, the pass and run game with with the scheme. So utilized correctly, I think I think they're extremely valuable and, and definitely at the top of the draft if they show the physical talent. I would say kind of the other interesting thing, and and just from the little that I know is is from what I had heard, a team like Seattle, you know, is going to bring in guys that are cheaper offensive linemen and and try to coach those guys into, um, or you know, like you said, to take a tight end guy that I'm sure is not getting paid a ton come yeah. play offensive line and, and, and develop that guy into a really good offensive lineman. You take a, a team like Seattle that does that, and then you take a team like uh, Dallas who takes, you know, three or four first-round guys, and yeah. I'm sure they're paying those guys a lot of money. I, I just find it so interesting that, you know, they're two you – know, not that Dallas is great every year, but two really good NFL teams that are thought of as NFL teams and taking two completely different thoughts uh, yeah. into their offensive line. And, and it's, it's funny because there are a few different scouting trees kind of that teams are all from and, and originated from now. There's John Schneider's the general manager in, in Seattle, and he's from the Green Bay um, scouting tree with Ron Wolf. 
where their whole thought process was later in the draft. You talk about these offensive linemen. Later in the draft, take guys with high physical traits. So height, weight, speed guys. The example of Trey Flowers is a starting corner for them. Um, it's a 6'3", 195-pound safety out of Oklahoma State. And they know that they play press man or they play three and you're going to have to throw the ball over. So they say, we're going to take the traits, the physical traits and the mental and the background, rather than seeing it on film in that position, we'll take that guy late. And that's George Fant at tackle was a basketball player. They've got a number of those guys on their, on their roster that they take late in the draft. Where conversely, we talk about different scouting trees. Pittsburgh has been that same scouting tree for 50 years. They like to take a tough, hard-nosed team captain type um, the example being like Tyler Matakevich, who's a, a backup middle linebacker that plays special teams for them, sort of an undersized, I don't want to say try hard, but he, he lacked the elite physical talent that tested at the combine. But on film, you saw him you know, make 170 tackles a senior year at Temple, and he's tough and physical. So seeing how different teams are built is, is unbelievably different, but they're both, you know, they both have sustained success. It's, it's really cool to see. What about like the, I was going to ask you about, you know, the, the tight end position, you know, the tight end position's kind of taken on a, a life of itself too. And, and honestly, I mean, if you look at all the, a lot of the, the best teams, you know, left in some of the, the top teams, I mean, almost every one of them has some form of an elite tight end, you know, I mean, it, maybe it doesn't have to be a George Kittle type, but they have somebody who can either, you know, really dominate at the line of scrimmage or, who can really dominate and do things in the pass game like a Kelsey. Yep. And that, and that's the exact same. I mean, you want the, the Gronkowski Kittle, um, you know, guy that can dominate the point of attack. We all saw Kittle laughing his butt off when he was pancaking the guy in the end zone. <laughs> that was great. And then, and then he's running, he's running dino routes out of, out of, he's the XL receiver all of a sudden. It's like, Whoa, what, what happened with this dude? So if you don't have Kittle, um, and you, you know, if you don't have Kittle, then then you need to find a flavor, you know, an elite flavor of, run, of tight end or or running back or whatever position it is. So, talk about traits. Travis Kelsey doesn't, you know, he he's not a blocking tight end. Mm-hmm. So he, but he's the best receiving tight end in the NFL and can operate, you know, in, in a in space better than anyone in the last you know five ten years at the position. So, kind of going back to that personnel conversation, why are the best? Um, team why are the teams right now you know why do they have elite tight ends what you know what's the reason I think they use their personnel better than anyone where mm-hmm. talk about San Fran they're in 13th personnel with Kyle Juszczyk who's a versatile piece they put him at tight end and then they have Kittle and they have another they have, I think it's Levi and Toy Lolo so they have three different body types and traits at, at tight end so the other team has to call you know the opposing defense has to call 13 personnel so they're out there and they're saying okay we have to run against 13 personnel we have to have our our bear package out there and all of a sudden, George Kittle motions out, and he's got a mic on him because they're in one, and it's a touchdown, you know. And it's 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 a huge chess game when you when you match the scheme and the personnel that way. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, it, it gets it would be brutal to try to uh, to do that. Uh, so my other kind of big thing that I've seen at least this year, maybe I haven't paid attention in the past, but. Um, is there's been quite a few fullbacks, and I think because of injury, but there's been quite a few fullbacks, at least two or three, um, that are starting linebackers in the NFL, and, yeah. and they hop over and, and they play fullback for, um, you know, I know the Patriots. Patriots had their guy that, that went over and played fullback, was a Houston guy, and, and yeah. I think I've seen um, maybe a defensive end for, I can't remember, it was a defensive end playing Ravens. tight end or fullback. 
Play for the Ravens. What's his name? A Landon Roberts from Houston. He was the yeah. Mike. Yeah. He and it's it's the physical want to I think to win at the point of attack. But you talk about being able to switch from linebacker to fullback. That's an advantage too because you're essentially creating a roster spot on your on your team. So, um, you know, if you have a guy that that you carry a certain amount of players each position on the 53 roster and then the active 46 game day, well, you just created another you know corner spotter or. You could have a, a third QB active or whatever, maybe. We always joke that, you know, Odell Beckham could kick. Had we, you know, I wasn't in Cleveland when they had him, but if we could get Odell, we wouldn't have to carry a kicker because the dude could play both spots. So we always. <laughs> well, I, I'm sure you go ahead, Walls. I was just going to say, I mean, but that, that makes sense. I mean, you think about that spot. It's not like teams in the NFL are, you know, how many, how many snaps are they going to use a fullback? You know, you say 15, maybe 20 if it was right. a, a huge game. So he'd be played 20 snaps at fullback. I mean, he could still play his other 20 to 30 snaps, especially on the, you know, be it a defensive line or a linebacker spot because chances are, I mean, it's going to be, you know, a, a rundown, a first or a second down, or maybe he's a, you know, a D lineman plugger, or maybe he's just a pass rusher. I don't know. But, I mean, yeah. it's going to be specialized situations. He's going to be used in both of those and then also special teams. Yep. Yeah, and that's if you're if you're a fullback and you don't play special teams, I mean, you're you're a wasted roster spot in, in essentially mm-hmm. because you're you're providing less than forty percent, thirty percent of snaps on on the field where you can generate those yards in another way, whether it be third and one QB sneak, whatever it may be. Um, so if you're not a versatile personnel guy like Kyle Uschick, or um, or if you're not a, a dynamic special teams guy where you can run down and be like an R4 and actually penetrate downfield on kickoff or be a, a dynamic, you know, punt guy or, or the personal protector or whatever it may be, you're, you're, a, uh, you're, you're probably not going to be in the NFL for that long. It's hmm. just a dying breed to be a, a hammerhead at this point. Yeah, it definitely is. And I would assume it, it kind of gets tough for some of those guys that do play fullback in, in college because, uh, mm-hmm. like you said, there are so many great athletes that can probably go over there and get the job done as – as mm-hmm. as few times as it's as it's used um so i'm sure that'd be a little more difficult as well um yeah. so you've been you know uh, going through the middle of the of the country it sounds like with your yeah. scouting i'm sure um and a lot of driving and and some yeah. i would assume pretty interesting different colleges that you've been to do you have any crazy <laughs> yeah. college stories or or anything when you when you went out to a, a recruit someplace that was you're like i, I just can't believe and and you've got a story that you always go to uh recruiting at, at some of those places yeah, I've got, I've got, I've got a few. I mean, the, the I was the scout for Carson Wentz that year, and and first of all, that facility and that program is unbelievable. Unbelievable. Um, yep. it, it's unreal. And I remember sitting there, uh, and it was my first road. I'm the scout. I went to Dakota State. And I was like, okay, I've heard this quarterback's pretty good, and it was my first look at him. And I'm sitting there watching him, and I'm, there's one other scout in the room who's been there 20 years, and uh, he's been he's been a scout for 20 years. I'm sitting there with with him, and the young guy has to run the remote in the room. That's the rule. Um, so I'm sitting there watching him, and I'm trying to make small talk. Oh, he's he's pretty good. And the scout's not saying anything to me. And then all of a sudden, he uh, he about he's there about 40 minutes. We watched you know a game and a half. He just stands up and leaves, and he goes, "Yeah, I'm out of here, man. Like, there's no no work to do on this guy. That's gonna be the you know top five pick in the draft." And and he just stands and leaves. And I'm like, I'm sitting there trying to like rationalize to myself, is this guy a second, third round pick? You know, I don't know. I, he looks really good, but he's at North Dakota State. Of course, of course, North, North Dakota State's the powerhouse. Um, so that's one where it kind of just shocked me. And all of a sudden, all of a sudden, it gave me the confidence to say, you know, actually, I do, you know, a little bit know what I'm doing. Um, the other one, this is this another 
uh, pretty interesting is I, I was driving this, this highway south through, I think it's 20, no, 25 to Dallas. I forget what the highway is from, from Denver south through New Mexico and cutting over. Um, and, and I stopped for a game at Colorado State Pueblo. Um, I think it was the year after they won the national title. They had, they had a, the McDonald brothers. One was a running back, one was a receiver, and Morgan Fox, who's still playing, I think, for the Rams. And that facility and that, that team and that, that stadium was phenomenal. I mean, really pretty out there, South Colorado, beautiful. And there's just the stadium, that unbelievable tailgating scene I was just walking through before trying to get to the, trying to get to the sideline to watch the game. Um, so really the experience of seeing a bunch of those cool ones um, was something I wouldn't replace. Now they're driving across Montana and, in, in, you know, having to, having to leave Bozeman and get to the, North Dakota State, you know, the next afternoon and start watching film. That wasn't fun, but um, a lot of lot of time without signal on that drive. So. <laughs> I believe it. <laughs> yeah, but it was it was good though. It was it was a cool experience in part of the country. I'll probably you know I may never see again. So it was awesome. God's well, country's Harper. That, that's exactly right. I got to get up there some point. Um, it, I just got to make the time to want to drive through all that. I'm kind of busy fun. now. <laughs> and, and, and all the all the different schemes I saw along. I mean, at, at Montana, it was Bob Stitt was was airing it out out there, and then you go to you know Chris Klein in North Dakota State, and they're you know twenty two personnel and Buck Sweep and student body right and whatever it may be. So it's it's. I'll tell you, we talked about the players calling at the line of scrimmage. When when I did know Carson Wentz was special in their uh, national title winning drive, they would tell him at the two minute they would just put the personnel out there for two minute drill. And they would signal formations to him, and he would call the plays, and he would signal everything to those players. He called the game, the national wow. from the line of scrimmage. So wow. he's uh, he was special, and that's kind of what everyone knew. So, well, kind of coming up on an hour now, and and I'll ask the same question I asked everybody, uh, and it's really interesting to hear maybe your thought because you've you've probably watched about as much film as as uh, any other, you know, a lot more than probably any coaches, yeah. um, and so you've seen a lot of offensive linemen, and and you normally I'm sure just look at one, but. When you are watching an offensive line unit, uh, what's some things that they would be doing that would make you think highly of their offensive line coach? Um, communication. Communication, footwork. And, and when I would go to practice every day, um, you know, was, I think it was John Wooden when he was coaching UCLA. He would have their, their, their players do the same seven things to start every practice or 12 things to start every practice. There was, there was a couple coaches. Um, I would go to their practice. I think I went three different times. And it was like I was watching the same practice every day. Every time I was there, just just board work, board work, uh, you know, shoot work, and then and then walk through kind of thing. And it was it was remarkable to see the the translation from practice field to um to game tape when it when the bullets started flying and, and just being able to kind of as a coach be able to to drill that that um physically, mentally, communication wise. The, the footwork communication onto the game film is is really special from from multiple staffs I see. Yeah, that was honestly, you know, when when I went in and, and was learning in college, some of the offensive line stuff was one of the things that Coach Johnson uh, at Tulsa would yep. really instill. He'd just say, keep, keep yourself grounded in your fundamentals, grounded in your fundamentals, yep. and then he he'd say the same thing every day. Hey, it's just like going to church. You know, you got to do it every day. You got to say your prayers, whatever it be. But he'd do those same drills, and then you know, at the same time, you'd see other coaches that say, "Hey, you know, be grounded in your fundamentals." Well, then they wouldn't do anything with the fundamentals, or they're talking about another play, or they're talking about that. But I mean, it's like you said, when when guys would say, "Stay grounded in your fundamentals," and then it was 
the emphasis every single day, take this step, move your feet this way, yeah. hold your hands here. You would see those guys just get infinitely better. And you'd even yeah. see guys, you know, that were second, third string get infinitely better. And that's when you're like, boom, high five, you're a good coach. Yeah. And, and, and I, I love, I, I agree 100% with you. And, and being able to translate those, those drills to, you know, half line, guards, tackles, whatever it may be, guard centers, tackles, tight ends, be able to translate to, to develop that chemistry in drill work before the, the, you know, whatever practice period it may be before inside run period. I think be able to figure out from a muscle memory standpoint, how those, how that footwork and how that pad level operates when, when, other people around you is key too, because it, it's totally different going on a board, which you start practice or whatever it may be compared to, to taking a drop step and pin pole or whatever it may be in a, in a half line drill to, you know, full game stuff. So I think be able to, to translate all of that is, is really important as an offensive line coach. So I have actually have one more question. I hate to keep you on here too long, oh, but good. I actually have one more. So, so, you know, in the NFL it's scouts and, and that's their job and that's their complete job scout and, find out who the best college players are and, and how they rank and all this. And then I know there's a lot of call, you know, maybe Alabama has some guys that all they do is scout and maybe right. a lot of those schools do, but a lot of also the scouting comes to uh, a position coach who's also, right. you know, coaching his, his offensive line or, or whatever it is. And, and so how far, and I, you know, again, the weird question, but how far behind maybe are some of these college coaches um, in recruiting as compared to um, an NFL scout, that that's all they do. And, and I'm sure it's also different because, uh, you know, college coaches are looking at 16, 17, 18-year-old kids where yeah. you guys are looking at maybe the full-grown full adult as a college player. But how far behind maybe are some of these college coaches that don't get um, – that's not their complete job? And, and do they come up to you guys and, and try to learn from some of the full-time scouts? They they definitely do try and learn from 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 us, but but even I think the biggest issue with with when when staffs miss or NFL scouting departments miss or or you see recruits that are five stars at bust, and it may not be the player. I think that when you lack continuity in a in a scheme or a a scouting or a recruiting development or or evaluation system it takes a while to actually understand what what your evaluation system looks like on on film. So being able to translate that to actually evaluating it and recruiting and, and when you hit or miss, I think is, is tough. So being, you see staffs that have been in a school for a long time that probably hit at a higher rate because everybody's looking at things through a, through the same lens in a like-minded way. Um, whereas if, if uh, coaches are coming and going in college football and that's the nature of the beast right now, um, they step in, you know, at the AFCA convention this weekend, and they have to evaluate their position group by signing day and sign one more guy. They don't really know what they're looking at in their evaluation system yet. Whereas three years from now, they say, Oh, I now know what that looks like on my practice film on, or on, you know, as it translates to my practice film from recruiting film. So I will, I will see, which is really good. I've had a couple of college coaches reach out to me and just ask for, you know, resources that, that we utilize in the NFL to help you know, standardize their stuff and, and kind of sharpen their own eye and what they're looking for overall. But um, if you're not in a stable scouting system and know what you're looking at day-to-day, year-to-year, it, it gets tough and you'll probably miss it more often than not. Yeah, couldn't agree more that that continuity piece is, is huge. And, I mean, especially, I think, too, at that college level where the recruiting, the game is almost accelerated more. I mean, the more you keep changing, the more you just get behind after cycle after cycle. 
because that 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 relationship piece that that is the the biggest difference from that and then the nfl i mean you guys are scouting a guy and then we're selecting him or you know signing him as a free agent whereas in college you're like i gotta schmooze him i gotta know the family i gotta be able to you know that that two three years of of you know knowing a kid as a sophomore and all of a sudden now being able to recruit him that whole time it's such a huge deal but if you're changing coaches every year no chance no, there's absolutely no chance. And it's, 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 uh, you know, I did miss the recruiting aspect a little bit, a little bit with the, uh, the evaluation stuff, because you, you do all this work all year long and you know, you're not going to draft the guy because of where you are, he won't be there or you're all just one of 32 teams. So you have a very low chance of drafting the guy. Whereas if you evaluate a guy and you fall in love with this film and you love the person as well as, as you know, what his background is, then you at least have a chance to land them. You, you at least have a puncher's chance. So I didn't miss that opportunity. Whereas on draft night, it was almost like a letdown to me sometimes watching great players I loved or guys I, I really wanted our team to help us go to other franchises and say, man, we're going to have to play that guy twice a year if he's in our division. So, well, Coach, man, it's been a blast. I can sit here and do this for three, four hours. So uh, we'll let you get going here, but uh, hopefully be able to talk with you soon. No, absolutely. I appreciate you guys having me on, and uh, it, was, it was really good. And we always appreciate your support over at Just Play. And that's going to do it for this episode of RTP. We want to again thank all of our sponsors. You guys, make sure and go check them out. Help grow our community by telling other coaches about Run the Power. And if you enjoy Running the Power, go get your shirt, long sleeve, or hoodie at runthepower.com. Also, if you have any topics or any questions you would like for us to discuss in the next podcast, simply rate our podcast and then leave a comment in the writer review section of the podcast app. This will help our podcast rating as well as it will allow us to answer the questions you all want answered. Make sure and go check out our blog at runthepower.com. Follow me on Twitter at Harper underscore Coach and Coach Walls at Coach Brady Walls. Run the Power now also has its own Twitter and Instagram, and you can find that at runthepower. Hope you guys enjoyed this one. Talk to you soon.